It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. Uh, let's see things of note, uh, for everybody listening on audio, it might sound a little odd. We've been playing with some of the settings and stuff. Natalie has Bluetooth headsets with mics in today, and it's giving a different sound than what you might've heard in the weeks past. So just wanted to make that a point so that everybody wasn't like, what the hell are you doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mostly when we're doing things remote and virtually like this, you know, when you're dealing with technology, you've got all kinds of different things and any little adjustment or change in uh, equipment will change all of that as well. So, which is what happened, right? I have a very old computer and I had an old headset that finally gave up on me. So I'm working with Bluetooth and that's part of the issue. Yeah, but that's all right. We will, we will figure it out. Yep. So for today, I think I can't remember which order we did what in, but one of our last two episodes that came out on the beekeeper chats was talking about immunizations and treatment free and kind of like the parallels to that. So this one kind of goes in line with it. We are going to talk today about the actual immune system of the bees and the colony and kind of how that works. And we just kind of figured it would be a a good kind of segue over into that because, you know, what is the bees immune system? How does it specifically function? How does it help? And how is the colony's immune system versus the bee's immune system? Because we do view the bee as just a cell inside the, you know, the body of a greater organism. So mm-hmm. there's lots of different aspects to that defenses that they can use. And in this area of expertise is not necessarily my area of expertise. So we're going to let you do a lot of talking on this one today. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so what I, what I will say though, is from a, a very high overview perspective, on the bee, they their fat bodies are actually kind of what produce and store the is it vitagelinin? Vitilogenin. 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 Right, okay. I'm gonna say it right. Vitilogenin. I don't know if it's a V or Vi, but yeah, vital. Okay, so that substance is actually it does a lot of different things, especially in females and like ovary and egg production and things like that. But it also is a key factor in the bee's immune system. But another key point of the bee's immune system is actually that it's primarily focused on their esophageal tract. The esophagus, when they consume food and it goes down through that tract to the stomach, that's where the majority of their immune system is actually located. And that's one of the problems that some things like mites, for instance, have caused is because when the mite bites the bee, it is actually circumventing that original tract of the immune system. So the body's not able to fight it off as easily as it would if there was something that they were consuming. So that right there, in a nutshell, is the sum total (laughs) of my bee immune (laughs) knowledge. (laughs) Well, you do make some good points, though, because it's kind of like instead of going through the digestive tract and getting through the microbiome and the stomach of the bees and getting that immune response from the gut, basically, like just like kind of like mammals do, you end up bypassing that and putting those viruses directly into the bloodstream 
of the bee into the body of the bee through uh, the fat bodies and also some of the hemolymphs, the, the blood of the bees. So that transmission is, is uh, unabated. It's just basically unhindered and uh, bypasses all the defense mechanisms that the microbiome, microbiome in the gut offers. So that, that's an excellent point. And, that's part of the issues with the, the mites and the viruses that it transmits. So. Yeah, definitely. And it and, it's still, you know, we talked about it in the other episode that trying to fight an insect on an insect that is a parasite mm-hmm. is a very, very tricky thing to do. But there are ways that we can help the bees by helping either work with their natural immune responses or the way that their, their colony would address different type of immune response to things. Um, there's different ways right. that we can go through and help them to try to make it a little bit better, <laughs> for instance. Right. So one of the one of the things we talk about a lot in, um, well, we've talked about it in the podcast several times, but like the wax itself kind of acts like the bee's kidneys. It pulls yeah. toxins away from the bees, but the propolis, propolis actually acts as a multi-different faceted aspect of the bee colony. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's the glue and it's the sticky stuff and it's what they use to fuse everything together. But by coating the entire inside of their cavity with that, it is actually acting as an antibiotic, an antimicrobial, antifungal. It goes through and it disinfects antiviral. Exactly. So it helps go through and protect the colony by things that could get in and spread throughout the inside of the colony. And we through the things that humans love to do. Um, Mm -hmm. We have unfortunately hindered the bees in a lot of aspects because if you are a commercial beekeeper and you don't rotate out your comb, that comb gets uber black and nasty. And then it ends up becoming super saturated and leaching those toxins back out into the food and into the larva. And on the other aspect of it from just a standardized beekeeping approach, Propolis is a pain in the butt to work with. And when you have colonies that over-propolize things, it does make it more difficult to get in there. So breeders have purposefully selected for bees that don't have the tendency to propolize as much, thereby reducing some of their natural immune responses or ways to combat these types of pathogens from getting access into the colony. Right. And um, before I forget, some of those aspects of beekeeping that we we do usually with especially when you're removing the entire roof of a colony and exposing the bird's nest and just kind of like um, exposing it to the air and the atmosphere, the bees have a very tight, um, um, basically an inner system in there. They maintain a very tight temperature, humidity levels, but also, and a lot of people don't really know that, there's a lot of volatile compounds that are uh, in that bird's nest, mostly from propolis that they're maintaining a healthy environment, a a sterile environment for the brood, uh, that whenever we open and disrupt that uh, balance, we're really decreasing the amount of immunity at the brood level. So that's kind of something that we need to keep in mind when we're we're talking about propolis is that uh, it's not just at the um, surface and compact level, it's also in the atmosphere in the brood's nest that uh, it becomes a very important um, a very important uh, tool for the bees to keep the bird's nest clean. Now, you know, the, um, the superorganism versus the individual bee, there's a lot of things that are happening on a, on a spectrum from what is called something um, permanent prophylactic that they, is constantly there in the colony, which is called condu- um, 
constitutive, it's part of its constitution. It's always there and it serves as a background immunity. immunity. Uh, things like um, polyandry, the simple fact that the queen is gonna go and uh, breed with several drones is gonna be part of that um, system. And the more she's made it, the more diversity in genetics is gonna bring in, the more patrilines and subfamilies are gonna be present in the colony, and the more they're gonna be able to um, to uh, implement those strategies at the colony level and defend them from pathogens and, and viruses that, that they can find outside of the hive. And then on the other hand of the spectrum, you have um, strategies that are inducive, meaning that they only are used or in higher levels when problems arise and they're more adaptative. adaptative. They're just going to be uh, bringing in more propolis. They're going to do more of certain things um, in a voluntary way to um, uh, take care of some of those issues with problems that have been arising in viruses and pathogens. So if you think about that con um, continuum spectrum, you have on the um, extreme, the um, constitutive, the always there prophylactic, you have that um, polyandry. That's going to be really the key to having a healthy colony. That's really where you want to start. And that means that you really want to start with uh, well-mated queens that are local, preferably. I know we come back always to the same thing and I tend to go get on my soapbox about it, but local, uh, very well-mated queens. And um, that's going to be, they're going to be more resilient and more adapted to the environment and more resistant to the viruses that pests and pathogens can expose them to. Um, so that also gives them uh, all the individual bees will have a better um, health, uh, gut microbiota. So that that immune system at the gut level that we were talking about is going to be uh, a more present and more diverse, and that's going to help them with that. There's also a better immunocompetency uh, from that standpoint because they're going to be more able to resist uh, the viruses that they're encountering, encountering, but also they're gonna be able to, when they do encounter some of those viruses, they're gonna be able to lower uh, the level of infections. Um, so all that is playing together. On but the... there's also, let's, we can talk about other things because there's also on that spectrum, you're gonna have the task allocation, the polyacism, the change of, you know, they start as nurses and they end up as foragers. There's the, the, we talked about the propolis, there's the uh, hygienic behavior, there's all kinds of different things that happen increasingly more control in a more controlled way as we go and problem arise. Yeah, so on the gut biome and the microbiome in the gut, the just like for us, for people, it is very important to have lots of pre and probiotics in your diet mm -hmm. and eating a natural, healthy diet, not eating an overly processed diet is more beneficial for people because when you do that, you are picking up these natural pro and prebiotics that are naturally occurring on the fruits and vegetables and things like that. When you buy stuff that is overly processed, it's, you know, it's not only is it devoid of the nutritional value that you need, but it's also devoid of those other things. And it's the same concept for the bees. If they go out and they're foraging and they're collecting nectar, that nectar is going to have some of these naturally occurring elements and biotics in it. When they collect natural pollen from the flowers, it's going to have that naturally occurring different sets of things to it that they can then bring back to the colony. And as they go through and they make their brood food and everything else, and they make their bee bread, 
those naturally occurring things are what actually goes to help support that microbiome inside their, their body. If you're feeding them a protein substitute or a pollen substitute, or you're feeding them just pure sugar syrup or corn syrup, not only are they missing out on the vitamin and mineral aspects and the diversity of that, that they would find in nature, they're also missing out on the pre and probiotics. So if you are in a situation where you absolutely must feed for whatever reason, keep that in mind because they are starting to become more mindful out there on these topics. And they do start now to provide pre and probiotics that you can use if you have to, to mix into some of those other substances. But that is a very key element on, you know, well, you know, I, I pick on commercial beekeepers a lot because they put the bees on the trucks. They truck them across the country. They don't let them keep any of their natural food stores. They immediately take it away, pump them full of artificial substances and then and pack them on out there. And in the winter, they pack them full of protein patties, you know, pollen patties so that they'll brood up quicker so they can be ready to go to these massive crops of almonds and such. And those bees are typically the ones that suffer the most. They're usually the weakest. Right. They're the ones that you have those highest death rates on over winter and, and during the summer months and things. So it's very important that you make sure that you have all of these key aspects in play like they should be. And obviously letting nature take its course and doing the most natural approach is always going to be the best because then mm -hmm. the bees can find what they need and help supplement the things that they need. Yeah, it's important to trust the, the colony and the bees to do some of those things on their own because they are, they've been developing those strategies for mil millions of years. And there's a whole variety of strategies that they're using that we might actually be interfering with when we put any foreign substances into the hive. Like you mentioned, those, uh, those artificial supplements are not are void of the good stuff that they can find in their natural um, food sources. An example, you were mentioning the sugar syrup. Well, when they are foraging on nectar, those contain antimicrobial compounds that, like the alkaloids that are actually part of the chemical compounds that they're using to keep the colony healthy. So it's always better to, to let them do that. To have a strong immune system is what we want for our bees. And reducing the stress that we uh, expose them to, just like, you know, in some cases it's impossible. If you're doing commercial beekeeping and you're doing pollination contracts and you're transporting them, it's going to be really hard to do. And that's why commercial beekeepers tend to use more medication than backyard beekeepers who don't have to do that necessarily. And that um, the, the main thing that you can do is make sure that they are low stress uh, and, and that means keeping them in good nutrition environments, low toxicity environments. So you want good forage, you want low uh, pesticides from agriculture, you want um, lower monocultures, you want more diversity in your forage. Things like that don't go in there too often and, and all those things that you can do to lower the uh, stress level is gonna improve their immunity and their health in the end. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, the the other thing I wanted to mention that that's really exciting and, and fascinating to me is that they're using that uh, division of labor, that temporal polyethism, which means when they're younger, certain uh, age category, they're going to do specific type, type of tasks like nursing or, or um, working on the capping of the brood and all that stuff. And then as they get older, they progress further and further out and away from the brood's nest and towards the entrance, they turn into guards and then they start foraging. And there's a natural um, separation and compartmentalization from the foragers and the brood nest. 
meaning they're going to keep those foragers that are exposed to a lot of pathogens and diseases and viruses and things um, away from the babies which is smart. They're keeping them away from the nursery. Uh, and instead, they're going to use those younger bees that are not exposed to the outside uh, to do those work. So the younger the bee, the more, she, the more inside she works uh, with the brood and with the queen. And uh, the older she is, the more she's going to be away from them and work outside. So there's a buffering of the queen and the brood, basically. And that's a very important strategy that they're using as well. So we need to be very careful when we're um, manipulating and taking out frames of brood to boost another colony to make sure that we're not doing that in an excessive way and always very mindfully because what happens is when we've got, um, we remove a frame of brood, we disrupt the balance of new bees coming in into the hives, taking care of those tasks. And we're forcing potentially some of those foragers to go back and revert to being nurses, which would negatively impact the health of the brood's nest. Yeah. So all those things we need to be very mindful about uh, when we do any kind of intervention on the on the colony. Some of the other things when it comes to like, you know, divisions and subcategories of things that single bee approach, if you look at the single individual bee and the single mm -hmm. bee mindset of it, if an individual bee does end up contracting something and coming down with it and getting sick and ill, mm -hmm. literally they will choose the betterment of the colony over their own safety and health, and they will remove themselves mm -hmm. from the situation. So that bee will leave the colony. Those are oftentimes ones that you see drunkenly wandering around out in front of a hive somewhere or just randomly out in the middle of nowhere you know, a bee on the ground and it's not flying and it's not doing anything. A lot of times that's why they, they do have something wrong with them or they feel there's something wrong with them. So they have flown off because if they take that away with them, it lessens the chance of them accidentally spreading it to the rest of the colony. And so that's one of the ways as well that they go through and they help that out. Now on a human perspective of that, we tend to like to add emotion to things that maybe should or should not be there. Oh, yeah. And there was, there was a big push here a few years ago about, Oh, save the bees. Like if you see a bee out there on the concrete, it like, it needs a drink or it needs this and feed it sugar syrup. And so you don't ever want to do that because if you are feeding them something, one, it may not be the healthiest thing out there for them. That's and right. two, there may be a very good reason why that bee is there picking mm -hmm. a bee up off the ground that looks like it's obviously distressed and placing it back into the colony is actually defeating the purpose of what that bee was trying mm -hmm. to do. It was making a sacrifice to keep right. the colony healthy. And if you turn around and you're like, oh, you poor thing, you're lost, let me help you. And you put it back, you're actually inserting that disease or pathogen that it was trying back to remove into back into the colony. So there's, there's yeah. little things like that that we have to be aware of as well. It's actually called, I think, altruistic suicide. Uh, to your point, it's a very um, self selfless kind of a way to sacrifice themselves for the good of the colony. And interfering with that is never a good thing. Um, the other thing that be so so they will take themselves out, but also some of these bees, the undertakers, will um, help out with the ones that are not taking themselves out. And if they're sick and and unwelcome in a way anymore, they'll take them out as well. So there's those two components for that um altruistic behavior i mean that um uh basically self-cleaning of the colony from diseased uh bees that self-removal can be a little bit helped by some of the undertakers there it can yeah <laughs> it can help out it's kind of like how they help out with the drones at certain times of the year too it's yeah, like ah, you can't you can't, can't be here anymore <laughs> you gotta go it's not so gentle though i mean no. i've seen it happen and it's pretty brutal actually yeah i've, I've the, seen it 
yeah so so the uh, that's more on the ad hoc like oh something's happening we're going to pluck them out as we need to be but if we go back a little bit more on the constitutive on the uh, prophylactic there's also all kinds of things that happens at the individual b level as well for example on their cuticle they have uh, venom peptides that are basically antimicrobial and and uh, disinfectants uh, for the bees so on their body on the outside of their bodies they will have a layer of um, basically uh, disinfecting antiviral, anti-everything. Those venoms, those peptides offer protection around their body. So, um, and then they will also, they use that trophallaxis to inoculate the brood, basically. You know that gut microbiota, uh, that's also part of the trophallaxis and, and the exchange of those um, protective compounds, those antimicrobial compounds, through that uh, regurgitation and exchange of those um, foods and those stomach products, um, basically horizontally between every single individual bees and um, the, the larvae that they're feeding, but also uh, that can also be um, um, done at the vertical level when the queen is passing down some of those stuff um, in, their, um, in their progeny. So, it's a very interesting way for them to, to use antimicrobial compounds to, to provide the level of immunity at the colony level, even though it's, it's produced at the, at the B level. Um, there's other things that, so we talked about the trophallaxis and the, uh, the inoculation of the microbiota, but there's also, um, uh, they secrete glucose oxidase. So I had to look that one up. I'll be honest with you. They select, uh, they, they secrete um, glucose oxidase, oxidase, which is an enzyme with uh, antiseptic properties. So that provides also, that's transferred all, all over the colony. That's also going to provide a level of immunity from that standpoint. So they're multi-pronged approach, both yeah. at the prophylactic level and, and more and more at the, um, uh, and at the group level and at the individual, individual level and as needed. So they've got all kinds of strategies to take care of issues and pests and pathogens at the colony level. Um, the, the propolis, so they collect propolis and they will use that. We talked about it a little bit. That's also as we get further out into the ad hoc. Um, but my, my favorite thing is really that protective atmosphere when they're um, in the bird's nest and they're using those volatile compounds to make that atmosphere. Apparently that actually increases the uh, brood uh, survival, but also that also extends the adult life uh, expectancy of survival. So that's a very important thing that not many beekeepers think about when they crack open a hive. So yeah. you shouldn't do it too often. You shouldn't too much in the brood's nest and preferably uh, on the very small scale, which you know, you know me, I'll get on my soapbox and I'll say that's easier to do in a top bar hive than it is in the length. So I would crack the entire yeah. cover open. <laughs> or, I mean, this, so you could have uh, some modifications to that if it is a, like a long laying or a lay-ins and you've got partitioned covers um, that are still enclosing and covering up certain areas, then that's you can true. go through and kind of keep it like a top bar would be. But mm -hmm. that's also why in a top bar, we usually start at the back we don't usually start right in the middle of the bird's nesters to the front. We start at the back and we go forward until we find what we're looking for. And if you find that the edge, yeah, if you find that three or four bars in, you're done. You don't need to continue going in and, and opening that up. And so it helps keep all those 
the the atmospheric conditions that they have worked so hard to create. You know, it's it's temperature, it's humidity, it's all the volatile compounds that you talked about, mm-hmm. and so on the volatile compound part, the propolis still is a very fascinating thing to me because that's amazing. It's just like when we talk about food, and I, I still can't stress the mind-boggling aspect of this enough. The bees can actually detect to a molecular level different substances. And when they are short a specific amino acid, yes. they actually go look for that amino acid. And they do the same thing when they're out there looking for propolis. They purposely select things that are the most toxic and they take them and mix them together and create this chemical recipe goop that Mm -hmm. is perfectly balanced to where it doesn't harm them, but it harms all the things around them. And Mm -hmm. that is a, it's a fascinating thing that they can actually use. Now, there's one little adjunct to this that doesn't necessarily have to do with viruses and things along those lines, but it does have to do with predation and pests. And they've Mm -hmm. used the same types of things to go through and ward off some of the giant Asian hornets by going out and selecting the most foul feces they can find Mm -hmm. and strategically placing it around the entrance of their colony to both mask their pheromones, pheromones and ward off the hornets, because it's something that they're not really keen on and they know the hornets aren't either. And so they've purposely selected these things. So they're actually highly intelligent when it comes to what they're doing and why. And a lot of times we just need to follow their lead and listen to the bees because there is a reason there's a method to the madness. And even though we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not valid or very much needed. My favorite is like, well, what have you done? You, you're not reading the book. Get back into place. Get back into line. And I'm like, you shouldn't do that with the bees. They know what they're doing. There's a reason to this. But I, I love to your point that cloaking and that mask of think uh, yeah, <laughs> right. kind of impressive for them to do that. Uh, it's, it's just amazing that they're able to camouflage all those terrible messages, basically, and just kind of have that cloaking. It's like Harry Potter level, yeah. <laughs> as I'm concerned. It's pretty cool. They're, they are fascinating little critters for certain. Um, some of the other things that are that are a little bit more obvious that would come back to the immune response. So if you look at that individual bee and that's the individual cell in the body of another organism, just like us, we have our white blood cells, we have our T cells, we have these things that go and they find these bad little viruses and pathogens and they attack them and remove them. The bees also can do the same thing. And, and we talk about it when we talk about hygienic behavior Hygienic behavior can be grooming, but it also can be, you know, managing that brood nest. And just like when they find a bee that is ailing, who maybe can't get out or hasn't got out and should, and they will remove it, they do the same thing to the larva and to the pupa as well. If they find one that is affected or has died or has a disease, they will actually open up that cell and take it out. Bald brood is something that actually is not necessarily a bad thing because when they open up that, they are actually killing the thing that's the affecting the the larva, but it's not killing the larva or the pupa, and it still goes through and evolves, but it disrupts those cycles, and it's a way for them to go through and help. So again, there's a reason for it. If you see your bees doing yeah. strange things like that, that's actually a good hygienic trait, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, why they're doing it, what's causing them to do it, that could be a whole different story, but the fact that they are doing it is very, very, very beneficial to that colony. 
Right, and that hygienic behavior can also lead them to uncap and recap several times as they come and back and check and make sure that everything is all right. But like you said, opening it up and living it open is really going to put a damper into the mite expansion. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Although I would say you got to be mindful of the fact that um, sometimes those uncapped cells might be a sign of wax moth infestation tunneling underneath. So um, it depends how, and you have to kind of look into it a little bit still. Yeah. Um, but usually if it's a, a hygienic behavior, it's a good thing. And Very something true. that you actually want to see into your colonies. Now, if you see a whole lot of it, that means you might have a whole lot of mites that they're taking care of. Uh, so I would question the, the quality of the queen, basically. Always go back to uh, the forest behind the tree. Yeah. Everybody will say, you know, it's the mites, it's the mites, it's the mites. No, that's not the biggest problem that the bees have. The queens are the biggest problems that the, the colonies have. And if you have a poor quality queen, there's not, no amount of chemical and, and foreign substances you can put into a hive that's going to sustainably and um, for extended period of time maintain that colony uh, thriving and potentially alive because that means you have an underlying problem. And if you not, don't address the root cause, you're never going to get away with, you know, more and more medication. It's not going to help you out. So just be mindful of that as well. Well, and the, the queen is a two-pronged approach as well. So you've got the queen. She's very mm -hmm. obvious. We, we all are very familiar with her. What we often right. take for granted are the drones that the queen is mated with. Because right. just like the chemicals that we put into the colonies to go through and treat for things like mites, just like they affect her development and they affect her reproductive systems, they're also affecting the drones. And so she mm -hmm. can go out and she can mate with 75 different drones and have a huge genetic variance in there. But if all of those drones have subpar quality semen and genetic material That's to right. donate, then you still end up with a queen who cannot perform, even though it may not necessarily be her fault. She may have developed perfectly, but what she mates with, that's the other half of it too. Well, and that's my big point. When I tell people it's easier to do treatment-free beekeeping in an area where you have more treatment-free beekeepers than in an area where you have mostly treat treating beekeepers, because what happens is that those drones from treated colonies have subpar uh, genetics, have subpar sperm, and they contribute a, a disproportionate amount to the queen spermatica of unviable or pro-quality sperm and lower genetic diversity. So you end up, even when you're trying to get local queens and you're not trading, it's harder for you to raise good quality, well-mated queens in those areas. And, and so that's something to keep in mind. And in those cases, if you're really struggling with that, I would recommend at that point to bypass and forego the local component of the equation of using local survivor stock, meaning local naturally thriving stock, and importing a good quality, well-mated queen from uh, survivor stock from another area that does not um, basically overwhelm with treated stock. Yep. So that's something to keep in mind. Hey, we haven't talked about grooming. Grooming, and it's basically when the bees are, are, are brushing themselves off and getting rid of those ectoparasites, those mites, and those um, things that are hanging on from their bodies and just brushing it off. Um, and it's just kind of, it can be done uh, between, um, they can groom themselves off individually or they can help each other group themselves off. So that's another colony level slash individual level uh, multi-pronged strategy. And uh, it has several effects. So basically, the you know you can you can groom those and get rid of some of those um, pests, but you can also 
what it does is that it, it lowers the direct level of exposure to some of those viruses and those uh, um, microbes that are getting transmitted by those pests. It also, um, uh, it also lowers the exposure to the queen, of the queens to some of those bacteria that are heat killed um, by the other bees that are taking care of her. So there's a kind of a, we were talking about that vaccination effect. So basically you have a low direct exposure by keeping those um, levels really uh, at a minimum. It's same at the queen level and she can pass that down to her eggs and her progeny which is really a, a way to basically vaccinate the, the bees, the individual bees in the colony. And that's a, a really uh, great way to do this. But however, I would say that when you have a lot more uh, social grooming that can uh, take care of those vaccinations. But if you have a lot of issues or if you have too much of that grooming, you actually can potentially do the reverse and expose more bees to those pests and, and, and to those diseases by disseminating it wider into the colony. So it's especially true if that grooming happens with the foragers coming back that are more exposed to those pathogens. So that's another, the grooming is a wonderful thing that the bees do to take care of their uh, immunity basically. So I, I didn't want to forget about that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, when I when I was mentioning the hygienic behavior, I, I said it very briefly because I wanted to go off on the other part, but yeah, the actual cleaning of themselves is a huge part there. Now, when you were talking about like inoculating the queen, they are actually doing some research and some studies out there right now with a, for all intents and purposes, basically an immune booster that they are trying to give to the queens. They feed it to the queen. The queen's body then adapts and assimilates it. And then she passes it on genetically to the offspring and mm -hmm. to the children. And yeah. so they're trying to figure out kind of how to use that to their advantage and use that natural mechanism and process to be able to maybe someday give an immune immune booster, you know, to, to colonies yeah. and help boost some of these things up. So there's some really interesting things out there in science. Some of them are fascinating. Some of them are terrifying. terrifying. Um, some of them you sit there and you're like, have you ever watched any horror movie ever? Like, don't yes. you know, this is a bad idea. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, you could argue until you blew in the face about vaccines and boosters and, and some of that RNAi and, and things yeah. like that. And, you know, um, but I think that all in all, what I, what I keep in mind is that the colony has so many strategies that they're able to uh, leverage to keep their immune system uh, high and uh, have high defense against the, the problems that they can encounter with, with diseases that I'd rather trust them to do that because the unintended consequences of bringing in some of those things that we think are gonna help them out, whether it be even probiotics, even um, some of those boosters that you're talking about, we, we know that it might have some positive effects. We do not know what all the unintended consequences of those are and how it, it kind of uh, probably prop propagates throughout the colony because it is a super organism. And we don't even begin to understand all the interactions that are going on at, at the colony level. So yeah. that's something that I, you know, the fewer uh, foreign substances I can put in my colonies, the better off I am. Now, right. I will say what I'm doing right now is I'm putting, I'm putting together um, a mushroom beds. And the reason is because uh, their bees will forage on mycelium and get some of those compounds that are found in mushrooms that are actually very potent. Um, and self-medicating by foraging not only on those resins for the propolis, but also on those mycelium type of things. 
So rather than me deciding what I'm going to put in there, what kind of probiotic strain I'm going to put in there, what kind of mycelium I'm going to put there or, or some kind of supplement I'm going to give them, I'm going to bring it outside and let them choose themselves what they need to do. And I believe strongly that's the best way to go because they know better than we do every time. That's very true. And that is a future topic actually for the main podcast that we'll do in the fourth season. Um, okay. we, will, we will do an entire episode or two on fungi and mycelium and mushrooms, and uh, we'll have a, a special guest on to help walk us through that process. Is that Dr. Stamets? It might be, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I can't believe it. I, uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Then. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so we're, we're going to go through and we're going to to talk about that more in depth as well. So um, from the from the horror movie standpoint of it, the there there's talk, and I don't remember which pesticide and chemical company at the moment it was that's doing it. I have, I, have, I think, purposefully blocked that out. Um, but they were going through and they were doing genetic research on how they could alter the bee by turning on or off a protein, basically, that was required by the mite. So when the mite feeds on the bee, it ends up taking this thing in that doesn't supposedly hurt the bee, but it disables or kills the mite. It either makes them infertile or it straight up kills them because it shuts down a receptor that needs to actually take in, you know, certain things or produce certain things for the mite to continue functioning. Mm -hmm. And when I hear things like that, I'm like, yeah, okay. So it, that, that could be viable, but the problem is what they are looking at is just the bee and the mite. They're not looking at anything outside of that. So they can say, well, it doesn't affect the bee and it doesn't affect the colonies and you're good. And it only affects varroa mites. It doesn't affect X, Y, Z. But then I always have that that horror movie sci-fi thought in the back of my head. I'm like, but what about some other insect? Because a mite is still an insect. What about some other insect that also feeds on bees? And then it feeds on the bee. And maybe that has some sort of, you know, mutation that happens to that insect or or it kills that insect. And, you know, and then that insect is something that is fed on by some other thing or some little mammal or some lizard, you know. And how does that receptor either activated or not activated how does it affect these other things because all you looked at was the mite and the bee you didn't look at any other thing that could be related to a mite or any other insect out there that might eat a bee or any you know reptile that might eat a bee um Mm Yeah, so that it's always well, like you said, unintended consequences. Absolutely, that's a, a perfect example for this. And if you think about it, the the bees actually use some of the uh, some biological controls in the colony. They'll use pseudoscorpions, for example, those uh, those predators of mice uh, to kind of keep them as bay as bay as well. So if we, for any reason, this would be an example. Um, affect their efficiency or transform them in some kind of like, you know, uh, monster from, you know, that's been uh, <laughs> mutating or, or something, then we can potentially uh, have some of those unintended consequences. And some of those mechanisms that are uh, inside the colony might actually be disrupted by some of those uh, actions. So something to keep in mind. But if we go now to the, uh, back to the colony level, there's other things that the colonies will do um, there's, uh, you know, uh, everybody's always fascinated by uh, that social fever. And then they use the, so they'll use that to get rid of some of um, uh, predators, some wasps that come in, they get bald, 
they'll get rid of some queens by balling them. But also at the colony level, they are able to actually raise the temperature of the colony to levels that will kill some of those diseases and pathogens and uh, remain within the threshold that's viable for them. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that it's colony a, does. It's mm-hmm. just like you having a fever, your body running yeah. a temperature and raising itself to kill a pathogen, parasite, or virus. That's exactly okay. the same thing that the colony is doing. Again, it's it's like yeah. the colony is an animal, an organism. And when those mm-hmm. bees do that and they generate that heat, they raise it up to a level that's literally just within a degree or a fraction of a degree right. from their threshold. And they maintain it as long as they can that's until right. they've knocked down that that you know pathogen or pest that was in there. That's how it's like for humans having a 104 fever for, for several days, right? You're kind yeah. of like barely hanging on and it's kind of like the limit of what your body can take uh, as an adult. But then, you know, um, that helps you get rid of some of the problems that are inside your body. So I don't like to anthropomorphize, but that's one equivalent from, from that standpoint. And this being said, I wanted to caution people. We're talking about self-induced social fever that the colony will do and, and be able to control very precisely. If we are the ones that are applying the heat, like I've seen some of the systems where you use uh, solar or whatever, just, um, I forget what they're called. They, but they use like the, an infrared thing that that comes on and it's supposed to help with mites and it- or Some kind of roof, yeah. roof that is, uh, you know, powered by battery and they'll just kind of basically cook the colony uh, to levels that are supposedly too high for the pest and, but still viable for the colony. But I've heard a whole lot of horror stories about brood kills and even potentially queens being damaged by those extreme temperatures because they're not necessarily controlled the way that the bees need to have them controlled. Yeah. They know better every time. They know well, better. And if you're doing that, if you're imposing this on a colony that the colony themselves doesn't think that they need it, That's they're right. going to spend their entire time fighting, fighting. against it. So they're yeah. going to be bringing in water and dispersing it and fanning it and trying to cool it back down. And More you're, traffic. yeah, you're diverting the resources and the workforce from what they should be doing over to now trying to combat this added heat. But the the brood temperature has to be at a very, very specific range. And if mm-hmm. it's a degree lower, they can actually develop slower. And if it's a degree higher, they can develop quicker. Right. But when that happens, you know, some things could be skipped in the developmental process or they could be injured yeah. in some way. It's not, it's not a good thing. And so, yeah, you're, it's the same as the concept of the chemicals. You're trying mm-hmm. to affect an insect on an insect and it's really hard to do without affecting the other insect. Right. <laughs> it makes it very, very tricky. Yeah. So. I love my little hit. <laughs> And I was like, I can't hear what he's saying anymore. It jumped out of your ear. Yes, it did. <laughs> My brain exploding. <laughs> but there's another aspect. So that's that's all the way at the end of the spectrum where they do it as they need to and in the way that they control and that we should let them control. But the, the last resort is also the absconding. They use that when there's not enough nutrition, but also when there's too much diseases in the bird's nest. And they're just, just kind of like, we can't clean this up. We can't keep going. We're overwhelmed. We're going to leave brood and whatever food is left that we're not taking with us. And we're going to do a last resort, uh, last queen parade slate. and try to find mm-hmm, queen, slate so that they, queen slate so that they can start over with all that, that work, that load of disease, basically. Yeah. 
yeah, Africanized bees, the bees with the scutellata genetics to them are very adept at that process. If they think they've got too many mites, all right, let's raise a ton of brood, cap them and lock them all in, and then we're leaving. <laughs> Pack up and go. And then you make a good point. They will raise the brood to cap those mites in there so that they're not sporadic, and then they'll leave. Yep. They do it on purpose. They're like, yeah, here you go. So Plenty amazing. of nice, cozy little homes. All right, let's yeah, shut the door and lock it. Bye. <laughs> Look at all those sweet babies. Sweet for yeah. you guys. Yeah. They're out of here. And then they just sacrifice them all. <laughs> it's brutal, but you know what? Again, it works. It's true. Nature can be harsh sometimes. That's for certain. Well, yep. thank you uh, for taking us down that uh, very windy, twisty path of, of the different uh -huh. immune systems of the bees. Um, I actually learned some different things there and there's always big words. So, you know, those are fun. <laughs> well, I mean, you have some really good points that I have never thought about as well. So, I mean, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope our listeners did too. I, I do as well. So uh, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. And as Natalie just, just literally said, we hope that you enjoyed and <laughs> we will be back with you next week with more little beekeeper chats here and uh, new topics to discuss. So tune in and until then, everybody be good. Be mindful. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs>